Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me an absolute legend. Jim Grant is the author of many books, including most recently, Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian. So, so Jim, uh, this, this title, it refers uh, to a quote by Jacques Barzun. Um, <clears throat> did did it, does it also accord with your, your personal views that this is, this is the greatest Victorian? He is the, uh, the greatest financial journalist who wrote in the 1860s and 1870s. <laughs> and, and in competition uh, for the title of the, the greatest Victorian. But, uh, you know, I, I gave a talk about um, Badgett in connection with the, uh, uh, with the rollout, if that's the word of this book. And uh, afterwards, somebody came up in, in, a, in a kind of a, in a bit of a sniff and said, Darwin, Darwin. <laughs> and I said, I, it's not my, I didn't make this claim. I said, rather self-defense. Actually, the, the, uh, the, uh, the moral was conferred by the historian G.M. Young, who wrote the most marvelous history about Victorian England, about 150 pages, I guess. And uh, as a piece of writing, it is unsurpassed by almost anything, but G.M. Young, judge that uh, Badgett was the greatest Victorian. And I don't know about that title, but uh, I, I can vouch for the fact that it's not um, by itself a great marketing push for a book, not by itself. Now, he was what you called a, a first draft writer. Yes. Uh, so that is quite, quite different from the standards of today. And as, as a very thorough reader of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I can I can say most definitely that it's not a first draft copy. Uh, so do you do you envy that? Absolutely. I spend I spend about a hundred and three percent of my time rewriting stuff. I, I sit in front of this uh, this keyboard, and of course, uh, well, I began with a um, uh, Underwood manual typewriter, as one did, and uh, the evidence of compulsive. Uh, somewhat uh, non-constructive perfectionism was there right in the wastebasket. You, you typed, and it, the paper was not absorbing the ink as it should. You ripped the paper out of the roller like this. And if you had small children at home, the sound of the increasingly muscular yanking of paper out of manual typewriter began to grate the nerves of the mother and the children. So what? So, but anyway, the, the evidence of rewriting was there in the wastebasket. But today, everything's digital. There's no, there's no trail. I mean, you can keep writing forever, as well, some of us seem to do, and uh, you can't. There's, there's nothing staring back at you, uh, condemningly, from the baskets and asking you mutely, "Are you sure you want to spend these hours doing that?" So his output was close to two hundred thousand words. Per year, maybe like he was somewhere in he was yeah. over a hundred thousand words per year. Certainly more, yeah, because the uh, Economist was then as is now weekly, and he wrote uh, five thousand words. I think that's a conservative reckoning, so that's uh, that's two hundred fifty thousand or so. And then he he wrote his books, and his books mostly uh, were um, serialized. They were they were essays that were. Uh, collected and, and published as a uh, as a book. Um, yeah, he was he was a formidable 
craftsman and a, a very, very prolific author. So I've read Lombard Street and it, it is an entertaining history of the, of the era, but it is not especially smooth. And his book writing, is it fair to say, suffered from a habit of writing first draft copy? Is that fair? Maybe, but some of, so much of the stuff was just, uh, uh, you wouldn't want to touch it. Um, not with, I, I mean, I conjecture it was first draft because he wrote so much and seemed to write so easily. You know, he, he, he uh, for example, during the, was a financial panic of the late, late 1860s. And uh, economists went to bed on Friday and uh, the panic was raging on a Friday. And he, Badgett, was the uh, vice president in charge of the family bank branch in London during this panic. And he was also in touch with William E. Gladstone, the chancellor, I think, of the Exchequer. And he wrote a note to Gladstone to brief him on the events of the day, attended to his own family bank, and wrote, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 words for The Economist, all without having a nervous breakdown. Now, I don't know about you, Brandon, but I, re I reckon that a formidable day's work. And, and uh, so, I'm, so I conjecture that he, did, uh, he wrote easily and well without uh, repeated trials of, uh, of making something better. I, I think he was the kind of guy who, who drafted in his mind and his fingers merely transcribed what he had already thought. Uh, that was Badgett. It's not me. Perhaps it's his or it is not you, but it's a, very, it's a very desirable trait to bring through life if you are in the business of writing against the clock. So you, you mentioned uh, his contemporary, William Gladstone, and Gladstone had an Iron Man constitution, like a very Victorian constitution and was an epic worker. Um, you say Badgett had some of this quality himself. One thing that I was curious about in a reading of the book is that uh, Badgett's mom suffered from mental illness. And it's not clear from a reading of the book what exactly the mental illness was and Badgett feared that he himself might fall prey to mental illness later in life. There's no evidence that that happens. Yes. He was, he took his, uh, his fiance solemnly aside uh, as the wedding day drew near. And he told her that, or I guess as he was proposing, and he said, you know, I, uh, I am the son of uh, a crazy person. He said it uh, more roundaboutly, but uh, he said, you should know this because if there were to be children, he said, this might be transmitted. I myself might be vulnerable. Of course, they, they did not have children, nor was Badgett uh, um, uh, unstable mentally, but he, he grew up with this, with this time bomb of a person in the house. She, would, uh, she had these, uh, these spells, and uh, she would go off into the village and uh, break a window or make a scene and, uh, and then return to normal. And it was, it was, it was, it was um, uh, unwillingly to be sure, but uh, kind of a tyrant, right? Because she had it in her power uh, to disrupt everything in the house and to, the, to a certain degree in Langport itself. That's the village where he grew up. So it was a very, very 
unstable household in that regard. Now she was, I think she loved him dearly. She, he certainly was devoted to her. And Badgett was, um, it must be said, was rather a misogynist, but he did not condescend to his mother. And he treated her very much as an intellectual peer. Now, are you able to speculate what the, the mental illness was? Was it manic no, depression? Or? I respect it. Interesting. I'll just go with nuts. Nuts. Okay. You mentioned that he was a misogynist. Oh, now nobody's going to buy the book. I, I said it first, but you needn't have said it second, Brandon, because this is not doing the commercial <laughs> project any good at all. In fact, we might be canceled right now. <laughs> With regard to uh, Badgett's emotional construction, one impression that I came away with in, in the book is that he he seems to have a tinge of, I don't know if you'd call it Asperger, Asperger's today, we might say that, where he, whenever you got into something that involved emotional or moral judgments rather than purely intellectual, he seemed to struggle a little bit. Very, very perceptive reading of what I might have written if I had, had a little bit more confidence in the diagnosis. But he is, uh, uh, he, he's la he lacks self-awareness in, in uh, situations involving uh, human relations and emotion. You know, he, when he was in, I went to uh, college in London, um, uh, University College of London, because uh, his father was a Unitarian and Badgett himself was kind of midway between the Church of England and Unitarianism. Anyway, he would not attest to the, uh, uh, the doctrines of the Church of England, which was then required for admission even to Oxford and Cambridge. So he went to college in London, and, and he took up residence uh, uh, in the home of a professor, and there was uh, three, three or four undergraduates. And Badgett discovered uh, that one of his uh, fellows in this house, on the same roof, was... It's not clear what he was doing, but it was not something that that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, matched up with the Ten Commandments. And, and, and Badgett uh, uh, thought about this and contemplated his duty and then went and reported this young man's wayward behavior to the authorities, and the kid was kicked out. And, uh, and Badgett uh, wrung his hands over this great moral dilemma, but, you know, he, he, he handled this, he handled it like, as, rather as an automaton. Uh, he, he saw something was wrong, therefore I do this. There was no emotional gradation. Uh, it, was, it was a peculiar episode. He, it, his childhood was marked with the same kind of thing. Um, so, I don't know, he was, uh, he was a, an odd duck person. But uh, people just uh, loved being in his conversational presence. They loved uh, uh, exchanging ideas with him. He was not the kind to, uh, as Dr. Johnson was, was a famous 18th century man of letters, to, uh, to talk for victory. There was nothing about the domineering, overbearing, intellectual and badgered in conversation. He would listen and he would charm. Uh, but, you know, he was, uh, other than that, he was a very, very uh, unpolished uh, social being. Another moral failing that he had from the perspective of today was he had a very accepting view of slavery. And part of it was he, he valued the life of the mind so much that 
in some of his writings, he, he approved or he accepted slavery because it allowed time for reflection, which of course strikes us today with horror, but that, that was the view in some of his writings. And I found it quite interesting that, that, um, he thought that the Confederacy was going to win the Civil War until quite quite late in the day. Right, pretty much up until Appomattox. Um, but you know, he was uh, he was a man of his time. I, th- I think he did very well by by qualifying uh, Badgett's attitude with the phrase uh, as seen from the present day. Uh, Badgett was, uh, you know, he was a Whig in politics, meaning he was. Uh, a man who, if not in the aristocracy himself, he was not sympathized with the notion that the, uh, the elevated class is elevated in mind and an outlook uh, should uh, should be the governing elite. He thought that, uh, for example, that the Reform Act of 1832 had had the unintended consequence of abolishing some of the pocket boroughs, the boroughs that were basically uninhabited by voters, but under the control of certain aristocrats. The Reform Act of 1832, by, uh, by liberalizing the franchise, by bringing more people into the British electorate, and by cutting away some of the aristocratic dominance, he thought that this had had the unattended and adverse result of stripping the House of Commons of its intellectual fiber. And uh, you know he he uh, he's, he's a, he was a snob, and he would you know he, he went to uh, he was in his early days out of college. He went to uh, to France, and he happened to uh, chance upon uh, Louis Napoleon's uh, uh, revolt. Uh, I've forgotten the year now. Eighteen forty-eight was it? Um, um, see, Brian, I read, wrote this book about three or four years ago, and already uh, I am losing the thread. So, but uh, anyway, in Paris, uh, Badgett filed a, 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 a fabulously accomplished series of dispatches for Unitarian Weekly, and he wrote about the, uh, the revolution from the point of view of Napoleon, he sympathized with Napoleon, and, and wrote against the horror of the Unitarian readers. He wrote against the aspirations of the democratic forces that uh, Louis Napoleon was going to crush. And he would write with Badgett about the starvable classes. Starvable classes. Now, granted, that's not something that would pass the New York Times copy desk today. He <laughs> did not say these things. So, so Badgett had in mind that there were certain classes in society that were simply better. They were better educated. They had, uh, they had a, a loftier view of things. They could see a little bit from the uh, outside the present moment, they had leisure uh, to do so. They had money and time and and uh, and uh, and, uh, and culture. And the readership of the Economist at the time was around four thousand, a very influential readership, yeah. but a, a small readership. Yeah. He never really sought to increase it. I think he, he wouldn't have minded had it gone. It was like thirty seven hundred and. And it was like 3,700 for decades after Badgett left. Um, all of the journals for which he wrote had these tiny circulations. The, the, uh, the intellectual and financial circles in which he moved were intimate ones. Uh, the city of London was small. The, uh, 
the intellectual uh, cohort that uh, uh, delighted him and which he in turn delighted, that was a small one too. And then I think the, the Economist, uh, when I, when this book came out in the last year, had, as we said, the footnote had a circulation that of 1.1 million, who knows what it is today, maybe 500 million or something, but it took a long time uh, to, uh, to get beyond 4,000, which gives me, as the proprietor of Grant's Integrated Observer, a lot of confidence about uh, what might happen in 100 years. Well, as we, as we know, it's a, it's a dear uh, subscription price. Very, very worthy subscription price. I've been paying it. Uh, <laughs> but but, but that, that might, that might uh, hurt Right, right the, if I drop the, the price system. to 25 cents, we could do better in circulation. And by the way, I know that I'm on the clock for this podcast because I've never been to conferences that run on time and yours, yours run to the second. I love, I love that. So, um, Badgett, the greatest Victorian, you might put him in a league with his contemporary John Stuart Mill, who's much more famous, or a, a generation or two later, uh, John Maynard Keynes. He's, he's less known than those two, in part, as you speculate, because his name is difficult to pronounce. People, people read it B-A-G-E-H-O-T and they, they don't see Badgett and they don't really know what to make of it. How, how do you see, uh, what similarities do you see with, say, a John Stuart Mill and uh, Keynes? They were, all three of them seem to have been prodigies. They were all brilliant from an early age. Keynes was a late bloomer. He was, uh, his academic career was not especially distinguished until he got what, to his early 40s. Um, uh, but, but you're quite right. They were, they were as children, certainly, they were all prodigy. John Stuart Mill was a uh, prodigy to the point of being almost troubling. I'm not sure. Uh, granted, if at Harvard, you taught there for many years, and you ever saw anyone come through your economics class quite like this child who had uh, been homeschooled to, by his father, this formidable, rather forbidding figure who um, was himself a, a great intellectual. Um, but, uh, but I think the difference between uh, uh, Mill and Keynes on the one hand and Badgett on the other was perhaps the difference in abstract intelligence. Badgett uh, was a journalist. He was, he was his, his strength was description. Uh, his book, uh, his little book on money markets was a, was a description. It wasn't uh, an analysis so much. Um, and uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, of course, was the author of the principles of economics, and he was uh, a theorist. And uh, Keynes, um, I don't know, I'm not, I think that Keynes as a theorist perhaps was somewhat more journalistic than analytical, but that's for economists to decide. I'm not an economist. But Badgett certainly was a journalist, and his best stuff was about uh, narrative and about texture and about insights of the human condition. Um, he, wrote a, he wrote an essay on, on, uh, on Adam Smith that was just a charmer. You know, you, uh, you read it, in the, and uh, you kind of, first thing you want to do is, is, uh, is uh, sit down and talk with this deceased great economist. The second thing you want to do is somehow revive him and take him home to live with your family. 
And Badgett had this, this gift. Whoever he wrote, he wrote about uh, John Milton, he wrote about uh, Lord Althorpe. He wrote about figures that you would recognize, uh, uh, figures perhaps in names who you would not, but each and every one, uh, each and every essay is a, is, a, is a delight. Badgett did attempt late in life to, to, to formulate um, uh, a work of theory, but it didn't work. It didn't, uh, it didn't fly. Uh, so he went back, and that's when he wrote his Adam Smith essay. He, he, he put the theory aside and wrote this great uh, work. So um, I guess I'm talking my book, Grant, but there's nothing wrong with being a journalist. One of the things I love most about this book is that it it writes about a a somewhat forgotten era. If you certainly, if you compare it to a generation or two later where you had the, the Bloomsbury group, uh, you have one of the most chronicled eras in intellectual history. In my books, I've tried to do that. I, I, I wrote a book about uh, Thomas B. Reed, who was a speaker of the house in the late 19th century. I was attracted to that because nobody else had done that exactly. Um, I wrote about the depression of 1920 and 21 because uh, no one had taken that. So I, I try to pick topics that have not been uh, written to death. I, I, a lot of people have made a very major contribution, a very good living by going back and writing the Enspark theory. Ulysses S. Grant, Ron Trinham, just um, or, uh, or Churchill. Um, uh, you just need to turn, you just need to uh, write Badgett the, the musical. <laughs> yes. Well, um, maybe Michael Lewis will take this up. Uh, he could make a, something more commercially viable out of it than I was able to do. So one of the more uh, entertaining chapters in, in Badgett is the, the chapter that chronicles his political race. And this gets to, to him having some emotional blind spots. He, he was recruited, essentially, to to run in this race that turned out to be quite corrupt. How did you, how did you learn about this uh, far gone race? Well, that was uh, clearly in the record of his collected works. Uh, we had to do a little more digging to get some of the better details. But um, so this, uh, this, I think was, he made several attempts uh, at entering parliament. And uh, the one we're speaking about has to do with an election in Bridge, Bridgewater, which was a notoriously corrupt uh, constituency in the West Country of England. And um, so the liberal um, recruiters came to his home in London and said, how about running? And he said, oh, yeah, I, I like that. And he said, of course, it's going to be clean. They said, of course, it will be clean. And uh, Badgett had to put up some money, and he did that for campaign expenses. And Badgett was a, a, a very self-conscious and uh, rather nervous and uh, slightly uh, unpresentable figure on the stump. He uh, had tried to run for office earlier in Manchester. He was basically laughed off the stage by the stilted way he met the crowd that was not entirely friendly. 
So this was years later in Bridgewater. And so there comes the day that he arrives to meet the voters, and he does. He gives a speech that is kind of credible. And uh, so they have a demonstration, and then comes election day. Election day. So he, he gets up and with his handlers moves around town uh, to, uh, to rouse the voters and to uh, urge them on to the polls. He's running against the conservatives. Now, the conservatives um, had no scruple against bribing the voters. They did it openly and successfully. Now, Badgett had given a rousing address against corruption. But he, he saw out of the corner of his eye that his handlers, too, were uh, handing out gold sovereigns to what would be uh, on the fence voters. Badgett saw this, but he didn't know what to do about it. And um, what he did not do was uh, remind his handlers they ought to save the ammunition. Not until the very end of the day, but towards the close of the day. So they wound up a lot more gold sovereigns to, to bribe than when the, when the election was over. So they, they got out marshaled, they got uh, out foxed. So Badgett loses by, I don't know, 17 or 20 crooked votes. And uh, so, yeah, that's disappointing. And then, insult to injury, he has got to, uh, uh, to reimburse his handlers for the money they illicitly distributed. So what to do? He, so anyway, he decided, yes, he would not make a scene. He would reimburse these crooks, these incompetent crooks, and that's where the matter seemed to end, except it didn't. There was a parliamentary investigation into this notoriously corrupt girl, Bridgewater, and Badgett had to give a testimony. And he did, and his testimony was, uh, I'm not sure how you read it, Brad. I read it as, as being, again, kind of unself-aware. And, and he left himself open to a uh, mocking attack against his own evident hypocrisy and his law-breaking, because what he did was, uh, in fact, illegal. He escaped with his reputation basically slightly tattered, but more or less intact. And, but uh, that, was, that was kind of, Pure Badgett, you know, he, uh, he made these speeches and they were okay, but not quite, <laughs> not quite stump worthy. And he sees with a blind eye what is happening. He doesn't move to intervene, nor does he move to improve their lot of electioneering by doing something a little bit more intelligent with the, with the tactics. So it was, a, it was a sad chapter in his life. But uh, it was a it was a not a typical one with respect to his own uh, emotional IQ. So he was clearly a, a genius in all matters financial. Um, speak a bit about his his background. He had the extended family business Stuckey's, which was quiet but also highly successful. The family bank, Stucky's Banking Company, his uh, uncle was the, uh, the great mover in this, but uh, uh, Badger was born in 1826. And uh, through each of the successive uh, decennial panics in the 19th century, there's one 1825, 1837, 1847, 1856, and so hip listeners to this podcast, Brent, I will say that this bank earned on its stockholders 
equity, that is what the stockholders put into the institution, it earned a rate of return, sometimes in excess of 40 for 40%. 40. Now, nowadays, uh, if you earn 12 to 15, you are thought to be doing very well. So Stuckey's was not especially well capitalized to look at it, but it was very adept at making good loans. And anyways, this is, this is his financial background. So Badger brought these experiences and these prejudices into his thinking about commercial and central banking as well. He was the author, was Badger, of the dictum that in a crisis, a central bank ought to lend freely a high rate of interest against sound banking collateral and to solve institutions. That was what he prescribed. And this, uh, these maxims have come down to us through the ages, through these 100 plus years. And the central bankers love to invoke Badgett's name when time comes to go in and rescue Wall Street or rescue the city of London or the Tokyo financial community from more or less self-inflicted wounds. But the central bankers don't say uh, that Badgett was a stout defender of the gold standard. Um, uh, entirely a, a non-believer in the institution of unsecured paper money. And that he probably would not have approved of the things that uh, central bankers nowadays do in his name, although of course you can't be sure about that. But I'm guessing that Badger would, wherever he's sitting, I suppose he's in heaven. He's in heaven, right? Yeah, of course. But uh, he is looking down with disapproval rather than approbation at what the central bankers have done in the name of Walter Badger. The Economist was not, well, it was very successful economically for a media publication, but it wasn't bringing in a lot of money. Yes, yes, for its scale. But he was moving in, in high circles, so he wasn't, uh, he wasn't making a, a lot of money from The Economist. So it was roughly speaking, half of the money coming from his Stuckey's dividends and half coming from... The Economist. So he, on the one hand, you note that The Economist, or rather he noted that The Economist was the only financial publication of the day that didn't accept bribes, that didn't tout. Um, But on the other hand, he did have this uh, conflicted situation where he uh, was the owner of a bank and he wrote about banks. And that, that created some some interesting conflicts and possibly. Yeah, well, um, there was this phrase, uh, uh, parenthetical phrase, to declare an interest. That's what the Brits say in the newspapers and in the magazines when they are about to write about something in which they um, are personally affected, right? To declare an interest, comma, that phrase was not current in the 1860s and 70s in London. Uh, we had, there's an entirely different approach to what was uh, uh, what was a conflict of interest and what was not. The Badgett, uh, uh, you know, advised William E. Gladstone, the great statesman, on banking policy. Such policies would have affected Badgett's own bank very directly, and Badgett didn't uh, think that there was anything wrong with that. Gladstone seemed not to mind either. I think both of them understood the other's point of view. But um, the life that Badgett led would not have been permissibly permissible today, professionally, professionally permissible today. You could not be an advisor, as Badgett was, to the uh, prime minister uh, while also running 
uh, a financial journal while also managing the uh, London branch of the family bank. That would, that um, particular trifecta would be disallowed. But it makes for a very good copy. Badgett was Gladstone's confidant. And for the most part, their views aligned. And then a bit later in his career, uh, Benjamin Disraeli was the prime minister and they did not align in views or temperament. And I found it quite interesting to uh, contrast the the histories, the early histories of, of Badgett against uh, Disraeli. Yes, uh, Disraeli was a, uh, is, uh, I, is a, he comes down through the generations, at least to me, as one of the most uh, altogether enchanting figures in, uh, in Victoria and England. He's a, kind of a, a little bit of a, of a rascal, not a scoundrel, but a rascal. He, was a, he quit uh, his legal training uh, as a young man to go write purple marketing copy for uh, South American mining promotions, um, which was not such a, a bad uh, prelude to the career as a novelist, which of course Disraeli also was, but a curious prelude to a career as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which Disraeli also became. Um, uh, but he, uh, I think what most irked Badgett about Disraeli was Dizzy's proclivity for changing his views. Um, you know, he was uh, he changed parties, he changed views on, for example, on electoral reform. He was uh, not easy to pin down. I think Badgett. Uh, uh, wanted him to be a little bit less of a weather than he was. And in financial affairs, Badgett was very conservative throughout his life. Maybe in maybe he spent a little high relative to Well, I, I think his wife, Eliza, was a spender of the family. Badgett uh, had a uh, reputation among his friends for being... Um, um, uh, you could... Uh, he was so tight, you could hear his pants squeak. No, I was afraid that. Um, uh, oh, I think that the phrase in American contemporary culture was he wouldn't pay a nickel to see an earthquake. But Badgett was, uh, as they say in New England, to round out the series of analogies, he was that close. That was the phrase for being cheap in New England. But that was Badgett. He, he was also uh, not a speculator, an investor. You know, you, you, people who are in financial journalism uh, write about investing all the time, and they, a lot of them, uh, uh, Quit financial journalism for the uh, for the adventure of starting a hedge fund or in putting money up at risk. Um, uh, it's like fantasy sports, you know. It's a, people want to take a risk and maybe make some money. Uh, Badger was uh, was seemingly immune to this. He, uh, he the only stock that he is known to have held was Stucky's banking company, and uh, he did not write about securities as uh, as was Grant stuff. He just he never undertook. Analysis uh, found the whole thing rather off-putting and somewhat uh, venal. So uh, the Economist was maybe the, the circulation might have been higher, banged a little bit more down in the uh, in the muck of calling out uh, different companies for either bullish vein or bearish vein. But uh, that was not magic. But the the Economist, their circulation did fluctuate with the cycles. Yes, and, and it uh, it uh, became very still. This is a no growth, 
uh, kind of grinding along at just about break even in the long years after the over end gurney panic of the late 1860s. And that happens to the best of us sometimes, Brandon, if you know uh, um, you're going well and circulation's rising, then wouldn't you know it? The world changes and uh, people no longer care to say, pay the same price to read the same great stuff. It just happens, it happens to the best financial periodicals. So Badgett was, uh, was up against, I, I, I found a, uh, uh, running a publication with a slightly larger circulation, but nonetheless a small circulation when I found a great, um, I, I formed a kind of invisible bond between myself and Badgett as the head of a small circulation financial periodical. It intrigued me to see the ups and downs of his business life. Well, that's, it serves as a good segue for us to get into uh, recent grants, interest rate observe. Leave listeners with the idea that you, you definitely should read this book. It will do a fabulous job of filling in gaps in historical knowledge about, about this important time. And you mentioned that this story of Overton Gurney, I think that also is one of the most entertaining chapters in the book. It was a, a, a generational business, is it fair to say, where the, where the transition among generations did not go very well and you, you met? Well, it was, it was, it was over in Gurney was the, uh, was kind of the Goldman Sachs, whom Morgan Stanley, whom uh, J.P. Morgan of its day, it was uh, on an eminence, uh, very close to the gods, the financial gods, and it became utterly corrupt, both with respect to business ethics and with respect to its own financing. And uh, it went public as it was dying, and uh, and uh, it's a fabulous. Well, you know, Brian, uh, what what I came away with having invested these years in studying Badger's life and times. I came away with a new appreciation of the of uh, of human fallibility, without respect to the uh, uh, the structural financial backdrop in which humans conduct their affairs. So I, I you know, I, I'm a, a kind of a retrograde person with respect to monetary matters. I still uh, hold the flame for, tend the flame of the gold standard. I believe that the, much of what the central banks are doing nowadays is, is wrongheaded and uh, um, is, uh, is worse than that. It's, it's, it's destructive, not constructive. But what I learned over the course of these years of study and writing is that uh, money is not humanity's best subject. And it's not humanity's best subject, whether it's a gold standard, whether it's an intermediate paper and gold regime, or whether it's a pure paper fiat currency system. People will overdo it, they will underdo it, and they will blame somebody else. <laughs> that is the fact of it. <laughs> And all of these theories, all of this highfalutin mathematical appendices that the central bankers tack on to their theoretical papers seem to ignore the fact uh, that uh, they are dealing with mortal beings whose approach to large sums of money resembles very much that to the approach of a love interest. And I've come away with the belief that uh, Markets are just as efficient as the people operate in them, and that finance is just as dispassionate and is, uh, is, uh, um, as uh, is the interaction between the sexes. 
or along the many sexes. So that's my speech, Brandon. I, I have become a little bit less uh, doctrinaire on the matter of cause and effect with respect to monetary systems, and a little bit more understanding of human frailty, which I think is damn, damn big heart of me yeah. at the stage of my career. <laughs> I think I'm the only person who's read every 2020 issue of Grant's Interest Rate Observer twice. Uh, and so I have some questions. Are we running out of time, Brent? We have 10 minutes. I think we have, I think we have 10 minutes and fire away, Brent. I can answer for all these things. Okay. That will be the perfect amount of time. So Grant's interest rate observer comes out every two weeks. And usually that's just right for a, a, a deep diving publication. Now, at this time, things are moving so fast that one has to resort to the, the daily grants emails. Things are, are really uh, moving quickly. But one, one line that you had soon after the April 9th interventions, which had the Fed getting into uh, junk bond ETFs and, uh, and other matters that they had not previously entered, you said... The opening line was the federalization of American finance didn't come of a clear blue free market sky. So I love this opening line as, as pros. I also, um, I also think that it's interesting that you did note a disconnect where we were, we had been going towards federalization of American finance for quite some time, but then we crossed a, crossed a chasm possibly with that with that April 9th intervention or with all of the interventions of March and April. There's, imagine kind of an arc of monetary evolution, of financial evolution. And I'll just take the, uh, I'll just go back 100 years. 100 years ago, um, uh, the stockholders of a bank were responsible for the solvency of the institution in which they held that fractional interest. And if the bank became impaired or insolvent, they and not the taxpayers, got a capital call to remedy the deficiency in the capital account. That was that. That's one thing. Then there was no deposit insurance. Then the Federal Reserve did not take it upon itself to intervene to support uh, financial markets. And uh, so that, that was the situation shortly after the Fed was founded, in, uh, you know, call it 100 years ago, call it 110 years ago, before the Fed was founded. So fast forward, and today we have uh, so many of the trappings of uh, socialization, of risk, and people have decided all these things were for the good, and uh, some of us agree, some of us don't. Here they are. So we have, in lieu of the capital call on the stockholders of the bank, uh, we have the FDIC, and we have the Federal Reserve to, uh, you know, to do extraordinary things when the need seems to arise. And uh, we have uh, markets that are very largely under the, if not the control, under the influence of central bank policies with respect to interest rates. And as of March and April of this year, we have a newly intrusive central bank that is directly supporting through these, these uh, kind of the Statue of Liberty play, right? It has a, a special 
purpose vehicles that the Treasury has to finance, and the Fed has little off balance sheets. But anyway, the Fed basically is now supporting the corporate bond market as well as the government bond market, as well as the mortgage market, as well as the junk bond market. And it is, um, uh, it is morally supporting uh, the stock market as well through its interventions. It has, through a half a trillion dollars worth of currency swaps, led foreign central banks to make dollars available so that foreigners can avail themselves of our bond yields as well. So the Fed has gone from an institution that was the steward of a standoffish kind of gold standard its founding more than 100 years ago to one that is kind of up in driver's seat. That's what I mean by the federalization of finance. And as I say, this is, I, I think it's a, an immense, profound change in our markets and in our political lives as well. I mean, markets are political things to, as well as financial ones. And, uh, and we have kind of elided into this. I don't recall an election in which these things recently came up for um, but people through Gallup at least have registered their approval of Chairman Powell and Wall Street itself is, is happy to have the support of the Fed um, to read the letters of people at BlackRock, for example. They are delighted by this. So here we are. It is the government's market. It's the government's yield curve. The yield curve being the alignment of the the array of interest rates over time, you know, three-month treasury bills out to 30-year bonds, that is controlled um, by the government. So it's, it's very, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's a socialized financial regime, and very few people say that name, but it's true. With Powell, um, there was a famous press conference in early December 2018 where the market tanked maybe 900 Dow points over the course of Powell's press conference. And he, he spoke at length and didn't seem to have any instinct to cater to uh, financial markets and financial markets cratered through the rest of the month. And then you had the famous Powell pivot in January of 2019. And then having pivoted, he went to, extremes that brought him to uh, February, March and April of this year. So do you have any insight into how Powell transitioned from like a Martin Feldstein, Ecton kind of fairly conservative guy into this? Don't uh, pretend to know what he was thinking or how he came to think what he has evidently thought. But you can imagine yourself in his place. And uh, uh, Donald Trump is uh, tweeting against you. The Wall Street Journal is editorializing against you. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller would like you to re-examine your premises. And the market is telling you that uh, you are wrong. And uh, so that's pretty potent opposition. So I, uh, that may be accounting, that may be helped to account for this change of mind in January of 2019. Uh, but you know, the, I think that the backstory to this is very important. The, 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 take it back to the uh, 2007, eight and nine Fed rules that uh, seem to have institutionalized uh, very low interest rates and increasingly very heavy 
financial leverage, leverage meaning a lot of debt in the corporate world. So once the structure of American business becomes very heavily encumbered with debt, uh, businesses lose a little bit of their flexibility. Then as debts build, they lose more, and presently, presently or at length, they lose a lot. They become susceptible uh, to changes in, in growth rates of the economy and you know, rates of increase in their own income. They, they're a little less resilient in the face of adversity. So if things slow down, uh, they have less margin between uh, prosperity and, and uh, not prosperity. And finally, if you're very heavily leveraged, a very small margin between solvency and insolvency. So markets, I think, are less capable of absorbing shocks than they were without uh, rippling consequences of insolvency. And I think uh, whether the Fed acknowledges this explicitly, they know it intuitively. In fact, the, the president of the Dallas Fed was it 2018 uh, or 19 at the latest said, uh, President Kaplan said, uh, we should not raise, he's speaking for the board, perhaps he said we should, perhaps, we should not raise our rate because corporate America is so heavily indebted. Well, how did it become indebted? It became indebted because interest rates were so low that you could not really uh, turn down the temptation uh, to borrow money and with the proceeds of those loans, go repurchase stock, get the stock price up. Most of these executives are paying with stock options as well as compensation in cash. So um, corporate America underwent a terrific change in financial structure, right? All these stocks that they purchased with all this debt, thanks to low interest rates. And the Fed, needless to say, was one of the instruments of imposing these low interest rates. Ah, maybe the Fed has it in the back of its mind that uh, it is responsible for the state of the collective American balance sheet, certainly in the corporates around very encumbered. In any case, the Fed is, is now, I think, it's got a tiger by the tail. It doesn't like the way things feel when stocks go down a little bit. It is quick to pounce with new stimulus. New stimulus means more debt. More debt means more fragility. More fragility means more interventions. More interventions bring more debt, and on we go. So my question is, where does it end? Where does it end? Lower rates, lower rates, no rates. More debt, still more debt, then what? You know, it took us, as long as I'm on this rant, Brandon, it took the United States 192 years to amass its first trillion of national debt. 192, so 1789 to 1981, I think. We are adding one trillion of public debt a month, a month. Now it's up to 25 and a half trillion. And uh, so, the, so people will say, well, isn't it necessary? What is the alternative? I'm not gonna get it, I don't know about that, but what an investor must ask is what are the consequences of these actions, well-intended or not, it doesn't matter what the intentions are, it matters what the outcomes are. It matters what the financial outcomes are, it matters to investors what the financial outcomes are, as we try to look at. When this first broke, when COVID first broke markets, you Grants was surprised by how quickly the interventions came because everyone had recognized that there was a sort of Fed put on the market and that they would, well, we 
bemoan the fact that they they do intervene when when markets fall. But this intervention came quickly. So in the first week of March, when the S&P was down 10%, you had an emergency cut. And Grants noted perhaps they could have waited till the, reg- till the regularly uh, scheduled meeting. And, and one thing that I, I found interesting about the, the April 9th intervention is that you have this you have this asymmetry in action where in March, the markets were declining quickly and they decided to have the emergency cut. But then, but then in April, they decided to uh, do the extreme intervention where they were buying junk bond ETFs and the like on a, on a Thursday and Monday through Wednesday, the S&P set records on an absolute tear. But they don't, they don't pull the planned interventions at a, at a time like that. They do not love a bear market. And uh, so people will say, What's, you know, who does? What's wrong with that? Um, the short interest, the bears can please uh, do something else for a living, but don't come whining to us about things going up. Things going up is good. Things going down is bad. That's the basic approach, I think, to the, the problem. Um, and one understands that. But the difficulty with it is that uh, uh, you know, these prices uh, are, in fact, price, interest rates are prices. And uh, one thing, and you can tell me you're the Harvard lecturer in economics, but I think that there is broad consensus among economists that price controls are not efficacious, in fact, are unbalanced, highly unhelpful, they distort outcomes, they distort the allocation of resources. And this is kind of an ecumenical conviction uh, on part of the economics profession. And yet uh, we see the Fed doing what amounts to a regime of price control with respect. Now there's talk about yield curve control, meaning the Fed is going to enter the market to assure that the 10-year treasury note is say 60 basis points, meaning six-tenths of one percent, whereas the federal fund rate is zero, but like that. So I say that the that uh, Fed policy has, has been reduced to um, an overt, if undeclared, policy of price control, and that the unintended consequences of this price control will consist, among other things, of the the, the across-the-board mispricing of credit risk. And um, so why is that bad? Why that is bad because companies that want to go out of business don't go out of business. You can imagine, uh, just think of a, a forest floor. Uh, you've never allowed a, a forest fire. The underbrush gets thick and at long length. And no matter what the intentions of the forest service, there is a fire. But the underbrush is so thick and so dry that the fire burns out of control. That's a little bit like what life is like in capitalism when there's no failure. Really. Um, so um, I, I think that the, the Fed's well-intended policies on COVID are going to have the predictable uh, but now unseen, certainly unintended consequence of making things still more fragile, more crisis prone, therefore uh, more uh, troublesome.
Well, I, I agree absolutely that they tend to make things more fragile and crisis prone. I also think that they make things uh, more unfair. You have the, the obvious uh, long asset price inflation as contrasted with what's happened to wages. Um, but also now, just given the extent of the intervention in financial markets, you have just rampant insider enrichment and it it just becomes very political i i highly doubt that it's coincidental that the monday through wednesday um <clears throat> april 6th through 8th was up so much in front of the april 9th intervention they hardly could have kept that intervention fully quiet given the scale of the given the scale of the of of the plans so donald donald trump uh it was all about the stock market, right? He, he, uh, um, he campaigned kind of against the Fed. We have a very false economy. Let me in. I'll make things right. So he comes in. The Fed is even more omnipresent. I guess omnipresent is, cannot be um, more omnipresent, right? So the Fed becomes omnipresent under Trump. And, uh, but notice the, uh, the disparity between what is seeming to happen on Main Street and what is visibly happening on Wall Street now. Um, there are a lot of times in the past where the stock market turns out to be a very foresighted creature. You know, they, just when you think that uh, Main Street is telling you the, the true story, Wall Street, it turns out, uh, has seen the future and has discounted it uh, through price action. That has happened a lot. It'll be interesting to see whether that is the case now uh, and whether Donald Trump, in any case, is going to be as comfortable campaigning on this fine, fine stock market when so many of people in his base are suffering unemployment and are spending part of their days idling in an automobile in a queue for a food bank. How is the stock market's new high, if that's what some version doing, how is that going to play in, in, uh, in, in across broad, broad swaths of America that voted for Trump? I don't know. But it is highly political. Well, we will have to continue this conversation over uh, drinks at the interest rate observer conference. I, I, would love I have a lot to say about uh, price controls and, and yield curve control. I think, unfortunately it's a necessity of the way that we're conducting policy. The, there will be a, a, a sea of red in every projection if we don't keep the yield curve very close to zero. So I think that's, we will have uh, price control, and it will be uh, ferocious, and and that repression will probably lead to an extreme blow up at some point in the future. We'll we'll have to chat about, speculate about those things. Uh, we know when. We have we have no idea, but increasingly increasingly uh, one has to worry about a, a sort of financial singularity where it all happens quite suddenly. We got a preview of that in in yes, March. Yes, we did. Well, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. I, I refer everyone to uh, at Grant's Pub on Twitter, and it is a, a pricey subscription, but I would, I would very, very strongly recommend it. It's the best, the best content out there. Uh, thank you, Brandon. Very high praise from you. I appreciate it. Okay, I will see you soon.